Cool. We are going to jump into the scripture this morning. Uh, you are in for a treat with today's service. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 through 23. And I know typically people say, pull out your iPhones, but I'm team Android, so yes, we can fight later. Let's prepare our hearts for the word of God this morning. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews, to those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law, to those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law, to the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel so that I may share in the blessings. Daddy, prepare our hearts today to receive your word. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. I am grateful to have been loved and to be loved now and to be able to love because that liberates. Love liberates. It doesn't just hold. That's ego. Love liberates. If you ever read Maya Angelou's very stirring autobiography, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, then you know that when Maya Angelou talks about love and its power to liberate, uh, she's not talking about something she read one day, but she's talking from personal experience. Uh, when Maya Angelou was seven years old, she was sexually assaulted, and she named her attacker. The first day that her attacker was thrown in jail, he was beaten to death. And Maya Angelou became so terrified of her own voice, she was so traumatized by the entire experience that she didn't talk. For five years, she remained mute, didn't say one single word. Now, as Maya Angelou describes it, uh, what changed her uh, wasn't speech therapy, although it's vital and very important. Uh, it wasn't uh, her parents coercing her or promising her a trip to the toy store. It was an act of otherworldly love uh, from a woman named Mrs. Flowers. And every day and every week, Mrs. Flowers invested in Maya Angelou, and she would make her cookies and tea, and day after day, she loved her. One day, Maya Angelou started to speak again, and it was love that liberated her. Long before Mrs. Flowers, God has been in the, in the business of liberating people, and God's most powerful tool, God's most dynamic and amazing weapon that he has in his arsenal is not force or coercion, it's love. There's a dramatic scene in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew 8, right after Jesus just got finished preaching the best sermon he's ever preached, any human being has ever preached, uh, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And as soon as he's done preaching that sermon, he encounters a leper. Uh, lepers were the untouchables in society. They were the people that no one would want to go near. Their disease so um, contagious and so deadly that no one would go near 
they would be banished from their families and go years and years without ever coming into contact with, with people just to be touched and loved. Jesus comes off this mountain, and he sees the leper, and the leper comes up to him and says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, prior to this, Jesus had healed people just from his words, and Jesus could have spoken those words to that man and said, be clean, and he would have been clean as a, as a newborn baby. Jesus doesn't do that. He reached deep down into his arsenal, and he touched the man, the man who had never been touched in so long. He reached out, and he loved him. And that man was more than healed. He was transformed that day. And his greatest weapon, Jesus' greatest weapon in his arsenal is love. Now, lest you think that it's for the leper or it's uh, a love only transforms those in dramatic circumstances, Scripture tells us a little bit about me and you. Uh, it says that you and I are lepers, uh, that we've been deformed by something called sin. And that's a big inflammatory word, but basically it's the reason you don't do the things that you do want to do. And it's the reason you do things that you don't want to do. It's the reason you're, it's so easy for you to be selfish and self-centered. It's something that's deformed all of us. And God, when he saw us in our condition, what's known as sin, he reached deep down into his arsenal, and he grabbed for his greatest weapon called love. Romans 5 and 8 is a scripture we've read a number of times. It, it talks about uh, what God's love for us looks like. Paul pens one of the most profound statements in Scripture. It says, But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That word, while, might be one of the most profound words in all of the Bible. While you and I are still sinners, Jesus died for the ungodly. Now, it makes a lot of sense if the love of God is his most dangerous and profound weapon that he would employ on the, those who are the furthest out, it would make sense that those who follow after Jesus would follow suit with him. As a matter of fact, in John 13, 35, when Jesus is talking to his followers, the ones who have placed their faith in him, this is what Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Not by your, your Twitter game. Not by how many Instagram likes you get. Not by how high your hands are raised in a worship service. Not by how many books you've read or scriptures you've memorized. Those, though, those are good things. Not by the church you attend. By this, by this one thing, will everybody know that you are my true disciple if, if you love one another. Now, if Jesus says that the distinguishing factor in your life, that the distinguishing factor of you being a follower of Jesus, no matter where you are, if the distinguishing thing is whether or not you love people, then I think one day when we meet Jesus, he's going to ask us that question, how did you do in actually loving people? I'm not saying, uh, how, how did you actually do with your intentions and with your actions? How did you really do with loving people? So the million-dollar question is then, if Jesus is saying this is the most distinguishing factor of who's real and who's fake, then what does it look like to actually love people? Disney and Hollywood have done an atrocity to the meaning of love. Uh, they've made it out to be a warm and fuzzy feeling that we feel. Uh, it could come, it could hit you when someone is singing in falsetto, right? You can just feel love and, 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 and warm and happy inside. When Jesus commands you to love someone, he's not commanding that you feel something. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. Uh, last night, I did a wedding for my cousin and his wife, 
And when they stood in front of each other and committed their lives to one another, when they read their vows for richer or for for poorer in sickness and and in health, they weren't committing to always feel good. They were committing that despite how they felt, despite their circumstances, they were going to love the other person. They were going to give of themselves beyond what they wanted to do. They were going to be patient even when they didn't want to be, when everything inside of them didn't want to. Now, not only does Jesus command us to love people, but I think the best measure of how we love people is not in the people that you like or or the people that are like you. As a matter of fact, Jesus says in uh, Luke 6, um, that the, um, but I say to you who listen, love your enemies, do what is good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Here's what Jesus is saying. Everybody loves those who love you. Everybody is nice to people who are like you. Everybody does that. You have to be a grade A jerk to to not love people who love you. You don't get any extra credit for that. That's just like signing your name on the SATs and you get like 400 points just for that. (laughs) That's nothing to brag, Jesus says. But essentially, uh, our love is determined in how we treat people who aren't like us and how we treat people who don't look like us and who don't. Uh, who have nothing to give us, those who have absolutely nothing to give you, the way that we treat those people, uh, the way that we treat people who uh, can't add another thing, a single good thing to our lives, that that is the litmus test for how we love. It's not a feeling. I love my son a lot, and there are days when he skips his nap where he is, I'm sure, he is Chucky. He is Chucky. And everything in me just wants to leave the house. Like, I don't even have to have shoes on. I just want to walk out and come back several hours later. Love is the commitment to engage with people that we don't necessarily feel good about, particularly at that moment. So Paul tells us these words in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 23, which I think is a good picture of what it looks like to love people. To the Jew, I became just like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like, those, like one under the law, though myself, I'm not under the law. To those who are without the law, the Gentiles, I became just like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all of this because of the gospel, so that I may share in his blessing." A great test for you and me for our love for people is in the way that we deal with people that aren't like us. That's why we as a church value this thing called diversity. Uh, And diversity is not just being in a room around a bunch of other people. Uh, Diversity, uh, as one way I like to define it, is is living as a family, committed to loving each other well despite our many differences. Living as a family, committed to loving each other well despite our many, many differences. And in loving people, despite our differences, we show ourselves to be followers of Jesus. It's so easy to love people who are just like you. Uh, my wife always clowns me, um, and Aswan, she calls it a bromance. Uh, I met Aswan, and 15 seconds later, I knew that he was someone I wanted to be friends with. Real recognized real, and I was like, dog, you look familiar. LAUGHTER 
And Aswan and I are very similar, except he has hair, and I'm much better at fantasy basketball than he is. But it wasn't hard. It's not hard for me to love Aswan, to want to hang out with him, to to want to invest in his life, to do good things for him. And it's not hard for you to do that for people that you like, that you're cool with, that are just like you, that vote like you, that look like you, that understand the same things that you understand. That's not hard at all. But what is hard, what really will show whether or not the love of God has transformed your life is how you love people that aren't like you. Now, when I say diversity, I want to be really clear on what I don't mean. Uh, I don't mean just being around and tolerating people that aren't like you. Like, hey, I came to church. I was around a whole bunch of different people. Great. Give me the diversity badge. I deserve it. I also don't mean it's having a few Instagram-worthy moments with people that you're otherwise disconnected from and then going on to do brunch as usual. And here's what I absolutely don't mean. I don't mean harmony. Harmony is suppressing things so that everybody gets along on a surface level. It's ignoring things that are really broken and really messed up in this world, in this country, for the sake of not ruffling a few feathers. As a matter of fact, in Galatians 2, there was a guy named Peter uh, who was starting to act funny around people that weren't like him. Uh, And another apostle, another follower of Jesus, a guy named Paul, confronts him and says, Peter, before these Jews came, you were sitting down eating bacon, egg, and cheeses with everybody. Now these dudes come, and now all of a sudden, now you're kosher. Now you don't want to eat with anybody. And he was starting to separate. Paul, in his love, confronted Peter. Oftentimes, love requires that we confront, but it has to happen in a way that people can actually receive. So by diversity, I don't mean you just existing and tolerating, and I certainly don't mean uh, just harmonizing and, and just suppressing things for the sake of not ruffling any feathers. What I mean is you committing to loving people well, to, to be a family, despite your differences. Now, there's a, a number of things that we see in the scripture that I think define for us what it looks like to actually love people well. To answer that question, what, it, what would it take for you to really fulfill Jesus' command to love people well? What would, what would you need to know? What would you need to actually do? Uh, I think the first thing in order for us to love people well, it requires that we know that people are always more important than our differences. Paul had very real differences from the people in Corinth. Uh, to be a Jew, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, born on the eighth, uh, circumcised on the eighth day, uh, uh, Israel of Israel, uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. He had very literal cultural association with people from Corinth. They were Gentiles. They, they weren't anything like him. But Paul, motivated by the gospel, knew that people are always way more important than their differences. And here's, here's why. There's a theological term called imago Dei. And basically, imago Dei means the image of God. And it means that every single person on this planet, every single person, even Patriots fans, are born and made in the image of God. And for no other reason other than the fact that they exist, they are infinitely, infinitely valuable. A couple months ago, my grandmother passed away. And uh, if you go to my parents' house, you'll see uh, photos of my grandmother's uh, on the mantle. And if you were to come to my house and to take out a marker and to go to one of the pictures and to draw the little funny face on her picture, I hope you can catch because you would catch these hands as soon as you came uh, upstairs. Because to disrespect the image, to disrespect the image bearer means that you are disrespecting the ones whose image it was made after. If you disrespect the image, you disrespect the one and who the image represents. 
And the Imago Dei says this, every single person, no matter how reprehensible you find them to be, that person was made in the image of God. And to disregard them is to disregard the one in whom their image represents. To disrespect them means you disrespect the one in whom their image represents. So Paul was willing to go after everybody regardless of their differences, not because his differences didn't matter, because they do. Differences do matter, and it it definitely makes it difficult. But he knew that people born in God's image were way more important than their differences. So he was trying to find a way. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Gentile, I became a Gentile. To the weak, I became weak. I did all things for all people so that some might be saved. The second thing, to love people well, we need to know that God's ambitions for us are bigger than our comforts. God's ambitions for you are bigger than your comforts. Now, when Paul says to the Jew, I came as a Jew, uh, he was speaking in very real uh, ways. Uh, There's a scripture in Acts 16 and 3 where Paul is with his protege, a guy named Timothy, and he comes to Timothy, and they're about to engage the Jews on a missions trip. They're about to engage and, and and share the gospel with some Jews. And he knows this group of people won't receive Timothy because Timothy hasn't been circumcised. Timothy wasn't born in a Jewish family. Normally that happens when you're like a couple days old. Timothy was like 30. And he said, Timothy, there's no anesthesia, bro, but you're going under the knife. What Paul was doing when he said to the Jews, I came as a Jew, he was making long-term sacrificial investments for the sake of other people. Now, a lot of times people come up to me and say, man, I really want to invest in this school or I really want to invest in, in this church. What, I, what, what should I do? And a lot of times what people say, uh, what, what people mean when they say that is, hey, what can I do on a Saturday morning between 9 and 11, because I still got to finish up Ozark and later on that day, what can I do between Saturday 9 and actually 1045 um, to, to serve this neighborhood? And I say, hey, I don't, I don't have anything for you. Hey, I, I really would want you to move here and to live here and to commit your life here for the next couple of decades, I guarantee you opportunities will arise at that point. We have a family that was very recently moved to really want to deepen their relationship with this school, and they looked at their two boys and said, hey, we're going to put our boys in this school. And to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the PS76 PTA parent, they became a PS76 PTA parent. Investments are sacrificial in their long-term and it, for us to love people well, it requires that you go well above your comfort zone. Now, self-care is a real thing. I'm not telling you to ignore emotional health, especially for the introverts in the room. You need your seven, six and a half days of uh, alone time. <laughs> but for that other half a day, I really want you... <laughs> It's going to require that you and I move beyond our comfort zone in order to love people well. God's blessings in your life rarely happen within the four corners of our comfort. I've seen it in my own life over and over and over again. I wanted God to do certain things, and then God just basically pushes me out of the door into the cold with no coat, and I'm like, hey, God, I don't know what you're doing, and it's there. It's always been there where I found God meet me and challenge me and grow me and do things in my life that I would have never envisioned possible. And to love people well, it means that you and I have to go above and beyond our comfort zone. And lastly, um, I think we need to know that loving people well requires that we do more than we have to do. 
Now, this is similar to going outside of our comfort zone, but uh, one scripture, all throughout the scripture that we just read, Paul says, though I am not under the law. And earlier he says, even though he's free, he's intentionally making himself a servant to serve other people. I think what he's getting at is this, that in order for you to love people, your, your mindset actually needs a change that you can't just get by doing the bare minimum. For those Native Americans that live in America or that live in the contiguous landlocked states, those on Native American reservations, they're not under American law. They can have their casinos or they can do whatever they decide to do in their sovereign land. And here's what Paul is saying. I'm not under that law. I don't have to do any of this. But I want to do it because I want everyone to experience this gospel of grace. Now, I think when Paul is talking about loving people well, uh, the, the crux of it comes uh, down to what you and I want other people to experience. And oftentimes it means that we go above and beyond what we have to do. There's a scripture in actually a, a chapter behind this in 1 Corinthians 8.13. There's this whole argument about whether or not you're allowed to eat meat. A lot of the Corinthian Christians came from pagan religions where they were sacrificing the meat to idols. And for some of the people, they were starting to get really conflicted about whether or not you were allowed to ever eat meat again. And Paul, even though he says, listen, these are not even gods. These are just like uh, images. Like, it doesn't bother my conscience. But here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 8.13. If, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I'll never again eat meat. So I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Millennia before the What the Health documentary came out, there was arguments about whether or not you should eat meat. This one for a different reason. And Paul is saying, even though I don't have to do this, meat is fine if I want to eat it. If it's going to cause my brother or my sister to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. Loving people well requires that we go above and beyond what we are required to do. But God knows this is not easy. Uh, one of the biggest challenges that the Corinthian church had is something that we experience here today in Harlem. Uh, for one, you have the struggles of a minority group and a majority culture. You have the struggles of a minority, minority group and a majority culture. And here's what's so interesting about Corinth. Uh, they were by far and large the majority of the population of the church. The majority of the population of the people in the city and in the church were Roman Corinthian people. But inside the church, it had this very distinctly Jewish lineage. As a matter of fact, the only Bible they had was the Jewish Torah. So you had the majority group in number who were the minority group in influence. In Harlem today, you have a majority group in number, and you have, minority, and you have a majority group in influence who own all the, most of the land and who are controlling the real estate. And it is hard to come together when there are cultural clashes that are, that are, that are upsetting you at every single turn. And here's what I think uh, Paul was leaning on when it was coming time to make sure that people love each other well. And it wasn't that they would just grit their teeth and determine that they were going to do it. Uh, he says it in verse 23. Now I do all of this because of the gospel so that I may share in, its, in the blessings for the sake of the gospel. I'm going to do all of this. I'm going to inconvenience myself, and I'm telling you to inconvenience yourself for the sake of the gospel. And by that phrase, I think Paul means... Two things. Uh, I think he's thinking about what the gospel had done to him and what the gospel could do for someone else. What it had done to him and what it could do 
to someone else. Quite frankly, it's going to take something much bigger than our uh, determination and willpower to be able to love people well. It's going to take the gospel. Now, when Paul is talking about this, uh, what the gospel had done to him, Paul knew very well how much God had to dig deep into his arsenal of love to forgive him. Uh, You guys may not know the story of when Paul became a Christian, but basically, Paul was the first century Suge Knight. You guys, Google that on your way out for those of you who don't know who Suge Knight was. Suge Knight was the enforcer. Suge Knight was the OG. Suge Knight was the guy that you did not want to bump up against at 2 o'clock in the morning in L.A. Paul made his living uh, killing Christians and persecuting people, and he was so determined to stamp out this little group of people called the Christians that he was having them thrown in jail and, and killed by the dozens. As a matter of fact, in Scripture, it records one of the first Christian martyrs, a man named Stephen, is that Paul was such an OG that when they went to kill Stephen and throw rocks at his head, they first went to Paul to, to lay their coats at his feet. But one day, Paul was on his road to Damascus to persecute more Christians, and Jesus confronts Paul, and Jesus digs deep, deep down in his arsenal to get his greatest weapon, love. Paul, why do you persecute me? Now, Jesus could have done what I would have wanted him to do, which is to make him suffer, to to make him miserable in life. How dare you do this to people who follow me? God's greatest weapon is not that. It's not guilt or condemnation. It's love. God came to Paul in a way that Paul could receive him, and Paul was blinded. And I don't know if Paul was more blinded by the light that he saw from heaven or by the fact that God would forgive him for doing the unforgivable. Paul later says, listen, I'll do anything so that other people can experience this. Man, if it takes me dressing differently or investing myself or pushing myself past the comfort zone so people can know this gospel, man, I would do anything. He knew personally what the gospel had done to him and in turn, what it could do to other people. Paul was saying, I would do anything so that you guys can have this experience. Now, I wonder oftentimes when it comes to me moving past my comfort zones to love people well that can't do anything for me or people that are different from me, people who don't, uh, it doesn't just feel as comfortable to naturally sit around and to be around. Uh, It's the gospel that motivates me to want to invest in people who can't give me anything. Uh, Paul Zahn is a a theologian. He talks about the grace of God as a a one-way street. He says, grace is a love that has nothing to do with you, the beloved. It has everything and only to do with the lover. Grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measurements. It has nothing to do with my intrinsic qualities or so-called gifts, whatever these may be. It reflects a decision on the part of the giver, the one who loves in relation to the receiver, the one who is loved, and that negates any qualifications the receiver may personally hold. Grace is a one-way love. Hey, earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this one-way love that hit him, and he says that God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin so that you and I could become reconciled to God, and in turn, Jesus is calling us to love people in the way that he himself has loved us. Now, one of the things that I love about the the ancient Jewish understandings of love and hatred, uh, as we said earlier, they're not feelings. Uh, Love is a commitment, and hatred, in turn, is a detachment. 
As a matter of fact, there's a scripture in Luke 9 where Jesus says, hey, if any one of you want to be my disciple, you have to hate your mother, your sister, your father, your brother, even your own life, then you can come follow me. Now, Jesus, of course, was not saying that you need to hate your mother or your father. He wasn't causing you to feel hatred. That's the opposite of what he was doing. He was saying you need to detach from them so much so. You need, your life needs to be so detached to them that you can finally cling to me. James picks up on this notion and says, hey, how do you love God? How do you commit to God who you have never seen, but you detach from your brother who you, have never seen, who you do see every single day? How is it that we have this vertical love that doesn't have any horizontal implications? It's not possible. It doesn't come easy for any of us to truly invest beyond our comfort zones. It's going to come by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives over time. But it does come through some intentional decisions that you and I make, and those decisions are decisions that we face every single day. One of the reasons we have community groups here is to put people in a room that do not have the same experiences. And we want you to commit to loving people well, despite your many differences. If that's something that you have time for in this season, it runs for eight weeks in October 1st through the end of November. Man, I would, I would love it if you would go to our website and register uh, to learn what it means to commit to other people, to truly be accountable to other people. You and I have these decisions every single day in front of us. And by the grace of God, I pray that we receive them. Let me pray for us. Jesus, uh, you know the many obstacles that we have to, to loving ourselves or loving anyone. And Lord, it's certainly not easy. God, help us to receive your one-way love for us. That your spirit would tear down the walls of division. That you would give us courage and boldness and confidence to go after loving people. That we would give what we have received from you. Jesus, let me pray. Amen.